And with that, let's pray. And we'll look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this, this time that we have to, to gather and to worship you. Lord, just in, in mentioning the, the, the book, The Insanity of God, um, about uh, this man and his family's experience um, in Mogadishu and, and then exploring the persecuted church around the world in depth. Um, Father, it's, it's uh, so often we take for granted the, the, the blessing, um, the, the benefit that we have to do the, what we're doing here, that we uh, really don't have fear of, of what we're doing. We can do this in peace. And, and so, Lord, we are grateful that we can study your word here, that we can worship you, that we can uh, gather as a body of believers in this way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, at this time, help us to, to free our minds from uh, distractions of, of, of a busy world. Uh, may we come before you, um, Lord, in need of, our, of you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would work as we study through this text in our hearts. Um, may we understand who you are, who we are, and, Lord, our great need for you. And so we thank you that you are a patient and merciful God. Um, we bring our cares and concerns to you right now and ask that you would meet each one of us, Lord, where we are with what we're dealing with. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Um, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began questioning them, what were you talking about on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. <clears throat> Sitting down, he called one of the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you uh, for this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for this, uh, really this transition in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus begins to uh, train the twelve on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. And, and the cost of following him. But ultimately, there is great reward before you uh, in following. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to rewire um, our thinking so that we are in alignment with the scriptures about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've, we've really been out of Mark for like six weeks, um, maybe more. I forget how many were, weeks were in December, but we kind of, we took a break um, for, for Christmas and kind of focused on the Christmas story. Then the last two weeks we had the missionaries come through 
um, you know, Josh spoke, it was really good, and that, that's sort of what Scott mentioned about this book on suffering, is that, that Josh had touched on, on suffering and, and what many of the students go through. Um, it, it's, a, it's a critical study, um, mainly because most of us, when we address somebody and talk about God, the, the, one of the top questions is, how can there be a loving God with all this suffering? Uh, and, and so th- there's answers for that, and so... Um, it's important for us to wrestle through. Um, and, and last week, we kind of cracked this a little bit for communion, but I, I really wanted to give the time for Lindsay to share. And so I, I want to take some time to sort of, uh, you know, as we re-enter into Mark, to, to get our bearings straight of, of where we are. I, I, I blasted through it um, last week, but... You know, we start verse 30 with from there. And it's like, okay, where's there? What's been going on? What, what's happening? Um, in the last few days, in the context of what these disciples are going through, for us it's been like six weeks we left off and was going on for like, you know, a number of weeks before that. But, but in the, the days leading up to this, um, Jesus started... Um, it's the same map. You can kind of see, there's the star, there's the Sea of Galilee, right? Just, you know, about one o'clock from the star. Um, they had made their way from Capernaum all the way up north and in, into the, where the arrow is up there, or where the line is actually, excuse me, to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi um, was really this, this, pagan location, be- beautiful in scenery. It's, 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 it's a, where a natural spring that still to this day bubbles up. It's one of the springs that feeds into the, the Galilee and then into the Jordan River. Um, but they, during that time, they believed that this was like the, the access point from the underworld where, where the gods lived. And, and you know, Pan was one of them, uh, like, like the Spanish bread, but diff, not Pan, but the god... Uh, Ignore the conversation I'm having in my head right now. Um, but so it's like this huge pagan site, and Jesus brings the disciples to this, this, this pagan location, and he says, who do people say that I am? And so they start kind of going back and say, well, some people say you're like Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say this. And so, so they're coming up with all of these things that the, the crowds that had come to see Jesus, who they said he was. And Jesus looks at them and he says, well, hey, who do you, who do you say that I am? And this is, you know, Peter's famous proclamation followed by his huge blunder. And he says, you're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're absolutely correct in what you said. And I'm going to build my church upon that statement that I'm the Christ. And then we're told it's, in Matthew, it's really clear. In Mark, I think it is as well. Um, but, but, but Matthew tells us, he said, from this point, Jesus begins to, to change his teaching and, and begins to tell them and explain to them about the cross. And, and so he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And, and when I'm there, they're going to they're gonna take me into custody. They're going to arrest me. And ultimately, they're going to put me on the cross and they're going to execute me. Um, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and at that point, Peter basically, as the sort of the spokesman for the disciples, sort of jumps up in self-defense and says, may it never be. Like, this is not going to happen to you. I will stop it if I have to. I will be the one to protect you. Um, this is not how the Messiah will be treated. 
And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're getting in the way of, of the plan of God. Um, this is what God has designed and planned for the redemption of humanity. And, and so he then from there says, not only that, but if you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. And so for us, you know, a few weeks ago when we went over this, we, you know, the cross today is like a, it's a, either a good luck charm. Like I know many of people who are not believers who wear crosses and it sort of makes them feel good. Um, you know, maybe a good luck charm. It's, it's sort of, um, even from a Christian perspective, if it points back to the cross, but it's done in a very glamorous way. Um, during their time, it, that wasn't the case. Like the reputation of the cross was the world's most horrific form of execution. Uh, it was painful. It took days for someone basically to suffocate to death till they could no longer stand up to exhale. Um, uh, it was public. So it was on the street corner. Imagine if it was at Valley Center, I think it would be like, I, I'm not sure which is the best corner to go from, either you know, the Colgrade and Valley Center Road or the one, the grade going out. Or maybe we could have Lake Wolford Road and this, you know, and then go north. But it's like every time somebody went by, there would be somebody naked hanging on the cross above their cross with the, the list of their crimes. There might be something about this to reduce crime in our city. You know, like we might be up for this. Um, but, but it was sort of Rome was making a, a statement, a twofold statement, like if you're under our authority and you commit this crime, this will be you. And number two, the individual that was up there, they were acknowledging by force, kind of, you know, there's a little tongue in cheek, that they were acknowledging because often they carried their cross and, and they put themselves there, sort of submitting to the authority, saying, yes, I did this, and yes, this punishment was due me. And um, so as they hung there dying for a couple days, they could talk back to people walking by, and people could talk to them or say foul things to them. And so when Jesus says, this is, this is my future, and if you follow me, if you want to follow me, this is your future. It's like, ah, this is like... This is a hard thing to grapple with. And so then from from there, we're told that Jesus takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. So the oldest, Peter, his brother, um, Peter, John, and his brother, James. And so they go from Caesarea Philippi up to what we believe is Mount Hermon. Um, Today, it's believed that it's Mount Hermon. The star down below is because there, there were, a while ago, people th- sort of thought it was Mount Tabor uh, in Jerusalem. But so, uh, just context-wise, it seems like it makes the most sense to me that he took the three, he goes up to Mount Hermon, and in the context of Caesarea Philippi, he does tell them, he says, you know, there are some in this, in this, in this setting that will see the kingdom of heaven before they taste death. And so I hold to the position that what happens is as he takes them up there, they go up the mountain, the disciples are sleeping just like these three guys have access to all these special occasions, and yet they always seem to fall asleep. And and so they fall asleep, but they wake up somehow to this picture of of Jesus transfigured. It says that he was was whiter than any launderer could, could make white, um, and then standing, or standing in their midst, uh, 
Um, there's Moses and Elijah having a conversation. And I believe that it was in Luke that it said that the conversation, the things that they were talking about, it was concerning Jesus's journey to Jerusalem to be crucified. So the whole context of the transfiguration was the, was the impending cross, this, this impending payment that was going to be made on the behalf of all men. And so Peter wakes up and he's like, what are we going to do? Let's make a couple, let's make a couple tabernacle, a couple tents. You know, it's easy to make fun of Peter just because we like making fun of Peter because Peter is so much like so many of us. And so, uh, but, but the reality was it's, it's believed um, that this was during the time of Feast of Tabernacles and they weren't in Jerusalem. And it's like, let's like, this is all happening. We're supposed to be celebrating. Like, let's make our tabernacles for them because we don't know what else to like. It's just, what do you do? And so then the whole thing, basically, as Peter's talking, cloud comes, two guys disappear. And they're like, hey, let's go back to the other guys. And by the way, don't, don't, don't say anything to anybody. Like, how, how do these guys keep their mouth shut about what they just saw? But so the three of them, they, they go down, and they link up in Caesarea Philippi with the other guys, and there's this big commotion. And the commotion is there's a father and a son. The son has some issues. He's trying to get help. The disciples can't do it. And he's like, I just came for help, and they can't do it. And if you can do this, then please do it. And Jesus kind of scolds him for his verbiage. And he says, you know, where the guy prays the great prayer, like, I I, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, I, I totally believe, whatever you do, Jesus heals a guy. And this is where we pick up the story. So, so, so we took all of that in very small bits, and it, it, it takes a couple months to cover that when we were going 40 minutes at a time, sort of giving the background. But for them, this is like they journeyed to Caesarea Philippi. They went up there. Jesus has the conversation. He leaves the rest of them behind, maybe the same day, maybe a couple days, but then he goes up, and then he comes back the same day, next day. And then they move on. So this is all within like a a weekend period. So in this weekend, suddenly Jesus opens up the spigot over the topic of the crucifixion, which has not been talked about at all. This is totally new information. And so verse 30, from there, from where? From Caesarea Philippi. From there, they began to go through Galilee. Now that we know the Sea of Galilee, um, like often we think of the Sea of Galilee, but it's the whole region uh, of the north is, is referred to as the Galilee. And so they begin walking through the Galilee and were told that he didn't want anyone to know about it. They'd been so bombarded with people coming to Jesus for, for healing, for help, for resources. He's you know, he's had the multiplication of the bread. He's healed all kinds of people. The world had descended upon him. And so now he's, he's pulling them away for the, the training of the 12. They need to be groomed for leading of the church that is coming. Time is running out. And Jesus is trying to explain them, like to teach them. He, for he was teaching his disciples in, in privacy, helping them to get it. They needed the information because Jesus was kind of putting all his eggs, kind of, so to speak, in these 12 guys. And so telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise 
three days later. So over and over and over again, Jesus is getting the message of, of the cross to them. First at Caesarea Philippi, they, they kind of miss it. Peter speaks up. He's kind of, rep- not kind of, he's totally reprimanded by Jesus. And then the three of them go up. They see the transfiguration. They eavesdrop on Moses, Elijah, and Jesus having a conversation about the upcoming crucifixion. And now, as Jesus is taking them away in privacy, he keeps bringing up this topic. Listen, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they're going to kill me. And when I've been killed, I'm going to rise three days later. So th- this is such a radical shift in their understanding of who the Messiah was and what was about to come. This, this doesn't even fit with their, you know, their 32 and a half years or whatever with Jesus. What, what they've seen is him calm storms. What they've seen is him raise the dead from, well, from the dead <laughs> like the, the, to life. He's seen him them multiply bread twice. He's, they've seen him cast out demons. This, this is a guy who was invincible, that, that he fit the shoes of the Messiah that was to come and to reign and to rule and to establish Israel again. They were excited. But now he's talking about his execution. Execution uh, for the, the most heinous of crimes, the most heinous of criminals would be executed by the cross. And this is what he's now telling them. And so Jesus, in his wisdom and his beauty, he's, he's explaining the gospel over and over and over again to them. And it really is a beautiful thought because I think this is what we all need. I certainly in my life did it on day one, somebody that whoever, like whoever the first person was that shared the gospel to me, I'm sure I blew them off. Like the fact that it's not even a blip on my radar, like I'm certain that people shared the gospel for me for the first 22 years of my life. And it it just, it just didn't register. It didn't register. I didn't care. I had other things going on. Like it just wasn't important. And then around Year 22 of my life is when it seemed like there was this flood of people sharing the gospel with me. And then you know, eventually somewhere around age 22 is when the gospel suddenly clicked. And, and I recognized my need and the provision of Jesus for my need. And my whole life began to be radically transformed. But but the reality is, is even after coming to know the Jesus and understanding the gospel, it's not like I got it. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said, oh, yeah, then everything just went hunky-dory. No, like, not only does it, it, does it take us hearing the gospel whole times, a whole lot of times for it to click, but then after we've responded to the gospel, because we're so hardwired for sin in our old nature, we need the gospel continually preached to us in order to begin living our transformed lives and to sort of undo the habits that, we, that we've had. Uh, you know, I think of the old hen, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Like even to this day, like the, the temptation of the world, the temptation of your flesh, like it's, it's overwhelming. And I think this is why, like, you know, taking the Lord's Supper like we're doing tonight, I, I think this is why it's such an important part of Christianity and why Jesus established this is that we would be constantly reminded of our need, his provision, and what he's done for us 
so that we would walk faithfully. And so we're told in verse 32, did they get it? No, of course not. Like, of course, like, it said, but they, they did not understand the statement. And it's so easy for us to sort of go, those guys are such boneheads, you know? Like, how could they not figure that out? Like, uh, David McKenna, he says this, we must go easy on the disciples here. They're in the middle of reworking every concept of the Messiah by which they have been taught. We who live on the other side of the resurrection don't have the same excuse. I would probably argue that point because I think many of us probably still have to rework much of what we've been told about Jesus that we don't actually, we don't understand who Jesus is. We have like a caricature of him. We, we think we know what the Bible says about him. Um, but, but, but they didn't understand. Like why, like why would the Messiah need to go to the cross? And I think part of the issue is they nor do we understand how vile our sin is and, or, and slash or how holy God is. That, that the, we, can't, we can't, because of God's holiness, we, we can't get close to him. And we're told that they're afraid to ask him. Like in the, so in the last week, as I've been wrestling through, like what was their fear? I don't know what I said last week. I'll have to go back in my quick thing. But this week, so, I, so one reason that they could be afraid is the last time that this was a talking point, how'd that go? Jesus rebuked, Je- I mean, Peter rebuked Jesus for this sort of talk. This is foolish, Jesus. Like, no, it's like, the thought of you going to the cross is just ridiculous, and we're, we'll prevent it. We'll protect you. And Jesus scolds him. and says, calls him Satan. says, get behind me. And so maybe, well, like, Peter's talking to him didn't go that well about trying to fix this. So, like, I'm certainly not going to try to, re- like, rebuke him over this. Like, <laughs> then this, the second option is the last time it didn't go so well, it, it led to this, like even if Peter had just let it go, sorry to put the song in your head, um, and mine, and, and like even if he had not followed up with it, they wouldn't have had the whole t- conversation about, you know what, and if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So that didn't go well. So maybe the, the, their fear was they didn't want to open up any more, like, like a can, the can of worms. Uh, it sort of makes me think about, um, it's funny because people have all different, like medically, people have very different positions on, you know, like I've never done it, but apparently there's like the life scan thing. Um, I was at a meeting this week where they can scan your body and they can tell you, yep, you got cancer or you're going to get cancer. Or you have this, and, and it can be used for your benefit. Like it, like it can be, apparently, like those that are for it like can be used for your benefit. The, the rest of us don't even like getting blood work drawn. It's like, my PSA's up or whatever. Like, I don't care. Just I don't want to know about it. <laughs> like, if I don't know about it, then I can go on my life and I'll be happy. And one day I'll just like, something will happen, but I'll, you know, I won't have to deal with it. And so maybe, maybe they don't want to, they don't, they're out of fear following up. They don't want to know, like, Jesus talking about him dying. Like, well, what about their, and we all know that they all ended up giving their lives. Uh, 
there's, you know, obviously there's one that was an exception and the other lived his whole life, but that was after a failed execution. But when I look at this, that they were afraid to, they were afraid to ask him. Whatever their fear was, their, their fear stopped them from having a really good conversation. Um, they had their reasons why this shouldn't happen. And so I believe that they, they missed an opportunity, like, they missed a huge opportunity. Jesus, why is this so? Why does it have to be this way? They could have had like one of the greatest teachings on Isaiah 53 that anybody of explaining. But because they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. And I do think there is a lesson for us in asking questions. Like God, I think, encourages questions. There are, there are those who ask questions with no desire to seek the answer. They're just being combative. And those people I'm not really that interested in having a conversation with. But there are people who are legitimately asking the question, why is there suffering? If there's a good God, how in the world, like, how can this be? How is it that babies are dying, like, that are totally innocent? How is it that there's war? How, like, why is all of this stuff happening? And I haven't read Theme's book, but I trust that he's good. I know, what the, I know the content from the Bible for the most part. But, but there, there are these men and women who've penned books. I think of like Joni Erickson Tata I've mentioned. She's done a lot on suffering. Ravi Zacharias is another man who's, who's taught on suffering. And when you look into the scriptures for what the scriptures says about suffering, suddenly it's like, oh, there's a deepness to suffering that like, there's a richness there. There's... There, there's something about suffering. I mean, that this book that I read, the insanity of God, these, this persecuted church where these, the, the, the horrific things that these people are going through and through their suffering, the, the beauty that sprouts from it and a depthness in relationship with God that we'll never get in the United States so long as we live. And I'm not asking for something like no, but, but the reality is, is we lack a depth of a relationship with God because we don't have the same level of suffering. But when I look at individuals and I meet, I'm like, ah, there's something special about that person. And then later you come to learn, like, like Josh, I don't know how much he touched on two weeks ago, like there's something special about Josh. And then when you start getting to know him and you realize, man, from like 11 to 13, he walked his mom through death as she died with cancer. Nobody would wish a 10 to 11-year-old to like, be there walking their mother through the dying at that young age. But then you, you see this fruit in his life through suffering that's like he couldn't have gotten that without what he went through. But they missed, they just were, they were afraid to ask the questions. For, for we can only speculate why, they were, why we were af- afraid to wrestle through these things. The, the only thing I can do is to say it, it's worth your time to wrestle through these theological questions, to wrestle through these things. Like, don't, don't just say, oh, God said it, I believe it, and that's the end of it. No, 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 no. Grapple with the text. Uh, go, go to small group Bible studies. Do these in-depth studies. Study, read, put, put stuff into your brain that helps you think through these, not just life-changing, but, but these truths that have uh, eternal implications. 
But the story moves on, verse 33. They, we didn't get any of that then. They would go through their suffering, and then we have the, the epistles, and they would obviously get it and share with us. Um, so they moved down to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Um, this is where much of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. This is sort of his, his headquarters for all practical purposes. And then we're told they came to Capernaum in verse 33. And when he was in the, the house, it's not just a house, it's the house. It's a definite article. This, we believe, when they put this definite article, they're identifying a particular house. And we believe that this was like Peter's house that they continually went back to. If you go to Israel, um, there's the spaceship church. For, when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it's like, it looks like a spaceship. And it's got like a glass-bottom boat. And what it overlooks is the spot that they believe was like the Peter's house or Peter's, like, where his mother-in-law was sick, where all of this like, happened. So this seemed to be the house that Jesus, uh, when he was in Capernaum, this is where he went and where he stayed. And so we're told um, he's going to begin questioning them. Like they were afraid to question him about some stuff, so he wants to talk to them. And so he began to question them. <laughs> hey, as we were walking, what were you guys talking about? Like, who were, I heard you guys, I heard conversation, but like, what was going on? I love this. I wish I could have seen, like there are certain things, I wish I could see the look on Jesus' face. I wish I could see the look on their face. Um, you would think if you're following the shoe, you think, oh, they're talking about the resurrection, the death. Like, well, what's all this talk about dying? And like, what, what, what's like struggling with this? And, and it, but, but the conversation is actually, they're, they're like arguing over pole position. Like, who's going to be like the top dogs in heaven? Like, they have a front seat to the Messiah. Like, they're in this house with Jesus while there's like throngs of people trying to have access. And here they are. And certainly we're his like... Um, his executive committee. And so how are we going to lay out, like, you know, as things develop, we're going to have to get more of a structure in place, and so we're going to need, like, this, the, the, the XO of the, you know, that's military. I don't know what a real business, what the number two person is, but in the military, it's the executive officer, you know, and it's like, we need to establish who's the number two officer, who's going to be the financial officer, and we know, oh, Judas fallen through for that one, and we have, like, we have all these guys, like, trying to figure out how, how they're going to lay themselves out so who could be the greatest, and if you go to the other, the other accounts, it's, it's funny because we can all see ourselves in it if we're honest with, like, this is, uh, you say, what are you guys talking about? But they kept silent. Peter, you're the spokesman. <laughs> you're like, why don't you take this one, you know? Like, they kept silent for on the way they had discussed, discussed uh, which one of them was the greatest. And I just love how Jesus works with the disciples. I love how Jesus deals with us, that, that he lets them sort of run out. And then he just doesn't come and start nailing them for how they're wrong. He begins with like a question, like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, no, this is not good. He heard, like he knows, like this is the guy that controls the wind and the rain and like the storms and like what were we thinking having this conversation? Uh, they... Uh, but he allows them to think through, to, to wrestle with um, the content of what they're talking about. And so th- th- they seem to be quite embarrassed because of the content. They, they know 
they know that everything that they're talking about, they knew enough to know this isn't how Jesus thinks. Jesus isn't like the others. Jesus is very different. They, they know his humility. They know his graciousness. And so then we see in verse 35 that sitting down, he called the 12. So he sits down in the house. He kind of calls them around. And it's, um, I think his posture kind of puts him at ease. It's like, come on, guys, we need to, let's, let's have a talk. You know, we're going to have family meeting here. And so he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So, so now discipleship, the training of the 12 is really kicking off with this whole radical, like if it was a radical thought for them that the Messiah might come to die, the, the whole philosophy of how you do things, he's tipped the whole world's economy, the world's how things are done uh, totally on its head. And and this is one of these phrases that even now in the secular business world, they're taking Jesus' model of leadership and trying to incorporate it into the the corporate world. Um, And and so, so he says, hey, if any of you wants to be first... The, the way to do that, he says two things. I, just, I don't want them to get lost in your head. Like sometimes we merge them together. So he shall be last of all. So if you want to be first, come in last place. And then while you're in last place, let's take it a notch lower. Become a servant of all. Like slave. That everybody else outside of you, you're a servant to. That's a difficult pill to swallow for this red-blooded American, you know. Like, this is not what we're about. Like, this is, this is super uh, revolutionary. Um, so, I remember early in my Christian life, um, where this concept began, like, where God began to like put it into my head that was so different from anything I'd been taught. And, and it seems funny now looking back, you know, because now we're going, I have to go back 20 years. I think of the technology. Um, <clears throat> but I had a super high-speed gadget back then. It was like cutting edge. So I found myself in the Middle East. I was in Bahrain. And I'd signed up for a marathon in Denver, that was a big mistake. I didn't really, the whole concept of the Mile High City hadn't really, it didn't dawn on me when I was in Bahrain and I saw the ad for this, this marathon. And so what I had is I had a Sony Walkman CD, but it was like one of the ones you could jiggle it and it wouldn't skip. So it was like super high speed. Like now I think of that like crazy. Like I used to carry this thing in my hand that was like water resistant. Some of us had them. This was like cutting edge. And to think that, like, when you'd go exercise, you'd have, like, one CD to choose from. Now it's like you have Pandora or whatever, and you have, like, you know, thousands. Like, you never have to repeat. And so when you're trained for a marathon, you actually have to put in a lot of miles, which takes time. And so you can listen to one CD in a, a run, like, multi, like, over and over and over again. Like, I don't... And so running the perimeter of the base in Bahrain over and over and over again, I had my one CD... Because during this time of my life, I'd cut out all secular music because, like, God was cleansing me. And so I had Audio Adrenaline. So super cool Christian band. I still like them today. And not that I listen to them that much. But, but, but there's a song 
on the CD, Get Down. And so you think, oh, get down, like, let's start boogieing or whatever, you know, or like whatever the kids are doing dance-wise. I never dance, so it's not really an issue for me. But the whole idea is about getting down, like, the pot, like going from first place to last place. And it was running, because running is miserable. All you can do is sort of process information that's being put into your head. And so the lyrics of this song is, I'm so... I was in a community that where being first was very difficult to do. Um, like out of 200 guys, 12 of us made it. And then of that 12, if you wanted to survive in the community, guys get kicked out left and right all the time. So to stay there, you had to thrive. Like it was, it was about not only being number one, but then having to fight to maintain to be in the number one spot so that you weren't excommunicated from the community. And, and not even going into the, how we treated the enemy. Like that was like you, you had to stay very top on your game. And so here I am running around the base, listening to this song, Get Down. And it, so I'm not going to sing it. Or I'm going to try not to. But it says, lavishly, lavishly our lives are wasted. Humbleness is left untasted. You can't live your life to please yourself. Yeah, but I think they sung that part. I'm singing all of it. Yeah, that's a tip for my mistakes. Exactly what it doesn't take. To win, you've got to come in last place. Here I am training for a marathon that I was about to race, and I didn't want to come in last place. That was my number one goal, is just like to beat one person. You know, like, and even if it was a girl, I was okay with that. Just not last <laughs> place. Like, like, I didn't want to come in last place. But I'm here in training for this marathon in the Middle East, to win, you've got to come in last place. B- bouncing around in my head, which stood in total contrast to my whole world at the time. It says, to live your life, you've got to lose it. And all the losers get a crown. I get down, and he lifts me up. And so th- this song was like, the, what I didn't necessarily realize is this song was sort of putting biblical content into my head to, to grapple with. Um, and Jesus is doing this to them. The Christian life is exactly opposite. Like the, the, the quote-unquote higher or more successful you get in the Christian world, really the, 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 the greater opportunity for you to be a servant to all grows. Um, this summer, I, I saw this in just a new and profound way. Like just, it was a good reminder. So once a, like once a year during the summer, we zip down to Shadow Mountain where my brother-in-law is the worship leader for David Jeremiah. And uh, it's, the, it's like the 4th of July weekend. Our boys, like, love it. Like, their sanctuary is a little bit bigger than ours. <laughs> like, they have fireworks on the inside. And guys, like, fast roping through the ceilings. And it's, it's just, a, it's like, so it's a fun show. Like, so we go, like, once a year on the Saturday night whenever they do it. And so we're, we're, we're down there. We're watching the big performance. A lot of fun. And then afterwards, my brother-in-law, Michael, says, oh, you know, Maria remodeled our office, like my office. And we're like, you want to go see my office? He's like, yeah, let's go see your office. And so we kind of go behind the stage, and his office is like literally like if you're looking at David Jeremiah preach, it's to the left right there, this little like odd-shaped thing. And so Maria like decorated his office. What I, the closest thing it reminded me of, it reminded me a lot of um, Graceland and Elvis's house, you know, like it was like, well, 
because I think Elvis is retro, so I think it's like cool now. And so it was like, ah, oh, this is really cool. This is kind of chill, you know, like it's like there's music stuff all around, like, you know, like stuff I don't know how to use, but I like get in there and like, I want to jam on the piano, but I'm just going to sit and just, you know. And while we're there, some guy like pokes his office, pokes his head into the office and is like, hey, there's leftover pizza. You guys want some? He's a father of four <laughs> that drove all the way down there and it's like, we're like right in the midst of dinner time. It's like, free pizza. I hope somebody says yes. Like, this is like, Feed all the kids, they can go to sleep on the ride home, and this is, this, is, this is sweet. And so they, of course, my, my, you know, my father-in-law, his life quote, of, it's free, it's for me. And so we went. And so I'm kind of thinking that we were going to like somewhere where the choir, you know, they have like hundreds of people in the choir, and, and I thought there'd be like a couple boxes of pizza with like a you know, few pieces, like the, the crust that nobody ate, which I would be totally fine eating. And, and, uh, but we go through like security to the green room, which I didn't know what the green room was. And it's like the green room is like bigger than our church, like this, this. And then I walk in there like, co- like super laid back gunner. And it's like, oh, this is like David Jeremiah is like right there. And there's like 10 of us. And it's like, Okay, so suddenly Gunner's not on vacation mode. Gunner's like, this is like the guy who ran my seminary, and like we know David Jeremiah, but it's like, that's like, oh, kids, like behave, you know, <laughs> like, hey, you guys know my boys, <laughs> you're all out of it, you know. And like before we can look, David Jeremiah is just another 80 year old man to her, so she's over there like giving a hug, talking to David Jeremiah, just like, like whoever, and and so we're we're eating the pizza. And the story has a point. Um, so, so, so then Dr. David Jeremiah comes over and he starts talking. And, and he's, like, he's like, hi, my name's David. And I'm like, Dr. David Jeremiah, I know who you are. Like, I went to the seminar here and I know who you are. You don't have to introduce yourself. And he's like, well, what are you doing now? You went to seminary. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I you know, I pastor, I pastor a church that's smaller than your choir kind of thing. And he's like, oh, man, I used to pastor small churches. I miss it, you know, like, it's like I pastor all. And he's just like a guy talking. But then he, like, he, like, dis, he like leaves, you know, and, and there, like, he has an office attached to the room. So then, so he's, like, in his suit, 80-year-old man, well, he's 78, but you can round up. He's got his, like, suit, like, you know, he's, like, untucked his shirt. And he's got, got all these little like hand grenade sodas. He's waddling out from his office to us. He's like, I see you guys don't have any soda. And he's like putting these sodas on our desk. And then he told somebody to bring in more pizza for us. And it's like, you know, like it just really blessed me. I'm like, here this guy, like David Jeremiah is like this worldwide personality on TV, like I'd say every Sunday, but it's probably more than every Sunday. And it's like, we go back there and it's just like, like, hi, I'm David. Who are you guys? Like, oh, let me get you some, let me serve you. Let me get, like, you, there's, we're, all, like, we're all out of soda. Let me go get you some soda from my office. Like, I see him in his little mini fridge, like, at 80, like just throwing these things. Like, he could have easily told somebody to do it. And it was just this, like, profound picture of, like, the, the Christian life. Like, if you want to be first, you go to last. And not only are you in last, you're a servant to all, like, right? Like, a song. Ellie and I's favorite song, like we cruise on Caleb. I'm not, I'll say, I won't sing it. I'll try not to, but I'm not, the song goes, 
I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody that saved my soul. Beautiful, right? So that's been like our like, theme song. Like, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody that saved my soul. And it doesn't matter where you are. Like, even like for me to see David Jeremiah to, to serve us in this way, when like we could have walked in there and he could have, just, we, I probably would have been just as happy like, for him to ignore us. Um, but he didn't. Okay, so, so Jesus tells them this statement that's going to be repeated. Like, we're going to, we're going to ponder this for, for a, a couple weeks. Because if you want to be first, you need to be last and servant of all. And then verse 36, it says, Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms. So, so, so the image is like, it's a little, so it's a, a boy. We know that because he says, he refers to this child as him twice. But, but the picture, we, d- we don't know the age, but it's somewhere like between like one or nine months, like walk, when you first learn how to walk, and to where you can no longer just gr- like grab them by the back of their neck and like set them in front of you. So all week I've had little baby Caleb in my mind. Like, you know, if you guys met Caleb, little, you know, little bruiser, like one just cruising the hallway, you know, like. But it's like he can go every once, but like dad can just grab him and say, Right here. Like, just pick him up and move him. And so here's Jesus. He's sitting down. I, I see some little kid, like, running between them, which there's all sorts of lessons in this that Jesus is going to get to. Like, hey, kid, be quiet. This is adults are talking. Like, no, Jesus grabs the kid, sets him in front of him, and he said to them, whoever receives his child like this in my name. So, so we need to, like, recognize like, kids, I think, have a lot more value in our society than in their society. In their society, a, a kid was, that we might be going back, like, but a kid was, was really, wasn't really, like, valued. They were, like, an interruption. They were a liability until they could get to a certain age where it's like, okay, now they're going to, the, the ROI, you know, return on investment. Like, they're going to they're gonna be able to produce something, and now they're valuable. But up to that point, there, there wasn't. Um, and so he's, he says, if you treat one of these kids, these kids, that they can offer you nothing. But if you receive them as you receive in my name, let me just read it. Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. So he's saying, if you receive this child, if you, and not just this child, but those that are like the least of these in society, if you receive one of them, in my name, meaning like, I don't want to do this. I don't necessarily choose to have a relationship or to be kind to this person or to treat this person this way. But because I'm a servant of Christ, I'm going to become a servant of all. Even this person, this child, this individual that can offer me nothing. Like going back to the business world. There are people in the business world that will only respond to certain people if they can function as like a stepping stone that will benefit their career. Then there are others who just serve all and they're not concerned about the, the, the pipeline of their career. Those people actually tend to do better because their character but then Jesus says, if you do this in my name, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And so we see this triunity of God. He says, you're actually receiving the Father. 
And so he's going to expand on this in a couple, like we're going to, we're going to continue through this leading through chapter 9. Um, but, but just the, the, the question is like, how do you treat the least of these? Do you treat yourself like first place when Jesus says, if you want to be first, be last and last servant of all? Like I, like I, I wrestle, like not wrestle, but I think that I've learned a lot of lessons in the front seat of a police car. Like going, like when you're with an officer, you tend to engage with people that you don't see just as a civilian. Like you go to the store and you'll see people laying there and you just like, I don't see you. I just walk through and I don't want to engage. When you're with a police officer, you're there to see them. And then when you see them, you actually have to engage with them. And then it just sort of exposes like a whole bunch, like who are these people? Like, like so, so often when I engage with like a homeless person or somebody that's got issues, it's like at one time this was somebody's like fresh out of the womb baby that they were like so filled with hopes and dreams and love and what happened to get to here. Um, like, how do you treat the least of those around you? How, like, better yet, like, how, how do you treat your spouse? Better yet, how do you, like, treat your children? How do you treat your parents? How do you treat your siblings is probably a good one to go through. Uh, um, how do you treat the person that you're checking out with at the grocery store? Like, there's a whole lot of people. Like, how, how do you react? How do you respond to these people in light of what Jesus said? It's convicting. Like, super convicting. I, like I, um, yesterday morning in the men's Bible study, we read Romans 15, verses uh, 7 through 9, which says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to... to. So, so Jesus, all through the New Testament, we see this, Jesus became a servant. Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourselves that existed in Christ Jesus, who became a servant to us all. And here he says, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So what he's saying is, Jesus came to earth and he became a servant to the Jews to fulfill and to demonstrate that God's word is faithful to all of the promises from Genesis to Revelate, not to, to, to Malachi, I see Larry here, Malachi. And... and uh, so that all of those things that were said, he came to be a servant to them to show that God's word was true. And for the Gentiles, he also became a servant. That's the majority of us, if not all of us. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So then there's this picture that the we Gentiles have been grafted in for the, the, the Jesus became this servant so that in us, God's mercy would be reflected. And what that tells me is that we who are Gentiles, which I think is all of us in this room, unless you know, there might be one of you that has some Jewish blood, that, but is mercy. Mercy means that he's withheld wrath. Like we were due punishment for our sinful nature. We were due not only for our sinful nature, but because the, the sins that our sinful nature caused us to do and that we have done volitionally. And we're told that through the cross, God's mercy has been sort of demonstrated to, to the world. And this whole concept is, is we're out of time. It's, this whole concept is going to be sort of continued to be unfolded through the life of Christ. But it's the irony of this whole section 
It begins with Jesus' example of telling them that he's about to go to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Why? Because of our sins, so that we could have that relationship with the Father in heaven. They immediately shift the conversation to who's going to be numero uno in the kingdom of heaven. They're totally off base. And then Jesus, in his great patience, his great kindness, it's so like his mercy and his patience with each one of us, like we so miss the mark, and yet he just sits down and says, hey guys, let's talk. If you want to be number one, which he's not saying that number one is bad. Like he's not even saying to be great is bad. What he's saying, if you want to be number one, if you want to attain true greatness, the way you go about it, is just 180 from the way you're going. You think you get there by this, but let me tell you how you attain greatness. You become last. You serve everyone. And somehow in this reversed economy, Jesus lays out this pathway to greatness. It's beautiful. And it begins with you humbling yourself and recognizing that what Jesus did was a need for you because you're a sinner. And then as we accept the gift that he's given through his death, burial, and resurrection, we submit our lives to him and we, we spend our lifetime like reading the word of God, studying it, applying it to our lives. It's not like a once and done. This is, this is a journey that lasts until you stand before your creator. And so we're all in different places. And so let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have had to, to gather and, and to, to look at uh, this testimony of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that the cross just didn't come out of the blue, that this was uh, in the works from almost the beginning. Uh, we thank you that Jesus came to suffer and to die. We, we pray, Father, that you would help us in our understanding of what happened and what occurred, that we would truly understand uh, the reason behind the need for the cross. Uh, Lord, help us to, to see our sin before you, your great holiness, and that this is the pathway to you that, that you have you've provided to us. And Father, as we uh, look to you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to rework um, how we think about life. Lord, align our thoughts to yours. Lord, help us to see that... Uh, Greatness comes by following Jesus, and that means coming in last place and being the servant of all. And so, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, um, remove selfishness from us. Lord, help us to, to look to others and how we interact with one another. We thank you, Lord.